welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsome. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. Now, we couldn't call ourselves a feminist podcast if we didn't invite at least a few men along to talk about their work and how they approach writing female characters. Our guest tonight is John Gwynne, an award-winning and much-loved author of epic fantasy. Would you like to introduce yourself, John? Sure thing. Hi. So, yes, my name is John Gwynne. I write epic fantasy. Um, my first series was called The Faithful and the Fallen. And now I'm, well, approaching the end of my second series, which is called Of Blood and Bone. They're, they're both fantasy series set in the same world, Spanish lands. Um, and it's a world that is, is um, loosely inspired by Dark Ages of Europe and their mythologies, Norse, Celtic, Roman. So, yeah, that's me. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about how authors are subverting or downright overturning classic um, science fictional fantasy tropes. But we wondered, you know, what about the merits of entrenched tropes and classic tropes? It's said that Grimdark is popular uh, because it rejects good and evil in favour of a, a much greyer world where the hero can be the villain. And the thing I like about your work is that it's refreshingly upbeat, uh, and I, we, we, re I feel like we really need some more of this um, slightly less pessimistic um, approaches to, to writing fantasy, uh, particularly fantasy. You know, when people would like to kind of, you know, possibly escape from the grim reality in which we find ourselves. Um, but do you think, you know, the, having these clear-cut moral lines, do you think this approach to fantasy is still very much needed? I mean, I think it's all about balance really I never really set out with an agenda of what I wanted to write in 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 kind of specific detailed terms but I grew up on those on those classics um Tolkien and Gemmell and Eddings and I have a, had a real that's really I wanted to catch capture that kind of nostalgic glow when I started writing um and I I was writing for really for myself and my family um, when I began writing. So they were my, my kind of um, captured audience, if you like. And I, didn't, I wasn't really thinking of being published or anything other, other than just writing as a hobby at that time. Really, it was about catch, capturing the stuff that I loved, that, that I looked back on with fondness from, from um, when I read fantasy. And hopefully adding more of a kind of a contemporary twist. Um, I mean, tropes... I know Grimdark is all very big. I don't I mean some people call my work Grimdark. Some people say it's not. I don't really put a hat on it. I just write what I write, I suppose. But I think I do agree with you that it is more upbeat. Or certainly, um, maybe the word I'd use is bittersweet. There's 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 happy moments mixed amongst the general grimness and pain and suffering and violence <laughs> that you get in fantasy these days. I began reading and also writing to entertain. I wanted to be entertained, that's why I read, and that was really my number one aim when I was writing. And what comes out is, is I guess, part of, 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 um, part of you it comes out in your books. And so I do feel like the world does need a bit more happiness. It's a pretty grim place, and when I started reading, I'd like to go to a place where I'm entertained and go to another world, and feel all those emotions, all those emotions, you know, fear, worry, concern, joy, sadness, heartbreak. I think it's all about balance, you know, trying to get a bit of everything in there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think um, 
there is a place in fantasy these days for something that isn't all grimness and depression. <laughs> and nihilism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so do you feel there are any aspects of traditional epic fantasy that are, you know, undeservedly derided for being, you know, maybe outdated or, or overdone? I mean, Take Charlotte, for example, really, really hates the kind of chosen one, the idea of the chosen one. But we we know I personally don't have a problem with this. So do you feel like there are other aspects which are, you know, which get kind of a bad name? Absolutely. I mean, I think I think the fantasy tropes are tropes for a reason. And that, that means that, that certainly they were very much enjoyed to the point that everybody kept doing them. And that's how they, be, they became tropes. I think it's important if you're going to if you're going to write tropes these days that you try and just add a freshness to it somehow. A lot of it is to do with how it's written. Yeah, I've I've actually got prophecies and chosen ones in my first series. So Charlotte, you might not be too happy about that. <laughs> I think it, it's I'll, fine if done well because, like you say, tropes are they're tropes for a reason. They're tropes because they're good and they're popular. Um, I mean, we were talking last week about. Um, writing female characters well and badly and saying just don't be lazy about it don't automatically put it in so you know I'm sure your books perfectly perfectly well deal with the idea of a chosen one and I mean lots of them do I mean just look at Anne Smith Spark if we're talking about Grimdark she takes um, the trope of a chosen one and turns it around and says what if the chosen one of my hero was a demon king so I think you're absolutely right John that you know if they're tropes for a reason and if done well then there's nothing wrong with them yeah, great. I mean, that, yeah, I really agree with that. I think it's more about just how you approach writing them. Um, you know, with my with my prophecy and the chosen one, they were quite interlinked, and it and without giving too many spoilers away, but it turns out that the prophecy is actually more of a a kind of a manipulative tool, and that the chosen one, at the end, it's him that chooses whether he wants to be the cho- chosen one or not. So it's. Really, the whole message or the theme, one of the central themes in my series is about choices, about the power of choice, um, about the consequences of choices, and how we're all the captain of our own ship, rather than ruled by fate and prophecies and you know that kind of thing. So it's more of a kind of a contemporary take on the chosen one and prophecy, I think, while still embracing that you know that that fondness that I grew up on of, of chosen ones and prophecies and, and in the in the um, fantasy that I grew up on. I mean, do you think that there? I mean, are there really any fantasy narratives that don't ultimately play into ideas of good versus evil? Is that the kind of central conflict at the heart of all fantasy? Well, I think you've got a really good point there. That is, I think it's very hard to stay away from that, even if you just come down to the concept of good guys and bad guys. I think it's very hard, even for Grimdark, to to not slip into that at some point. You know, I mean, I think most people think of Logan Ninefingers as a good guy now, even though he does terrible things. And same with um, you know, Mark Lawrence's Jorgen Kraff. All these characters that start off you know, as classically Grimdark, perhaps um, they still get people rooting for them. There's a humanity. Which, which people get behind, I think, and that's, that's, I suppose, that's what writers are after. You know, is 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 um, getting your readers to feel that your characters are relatable, are real, they're flawed, and, and Gemmell was a big influence on me for that kind of thing. Is 
it was the first time I read characters that weren't just shining knights. They were they were much more human and prone to making mistakes, and but yet still capable of being heroic, of, of, of making heroic choices as, as well as less heroic choices. And for me, that's what, you know, that's really what it comes down to, I think. It was interesting that you mentioned Abercrombie and Lawrence there. Um, I mean, I love Logan Nine Fingers, and I know what you mean. He does some terrible things, but he is kind of a hero. And I think that's because he has his own moral code, and it might not necessarily be what anybody else's moral code is, but he does try to do right by his men, by his family or whatever. Whereas yes. I, I didn't really get that from Jorgen. Um, in, I mean, I love Lawrence's Red Sister. It's a fantastic book, but yeah, Jorgen and I just, I just couldn't get behind him because he didn't seem to have a moral code. He was just too selfish for me. Yes, yeah, sure. I think I think Mark was very much trying to push the boundaries on that when, when he wrote that series. But I still, I still think we'll find a lot of people that, that, that really get behind Jorg for those reasons and can still empathise with him in some way. So I think if, even even when someone's being, you know, apparently utterly selfish, there still seems to be a, be a, some humanity in there that a lot of people, a lot of readers have got behind. Yeah, I think it it also plays into that the the protagonist bit. So once, even if you're writing about sort of someone who's traditionally an evil character, if they are pitched as the protagonist and written, you know, so that the readers can identify them with them you sort of you do start to blur those lines but it just becomes you you kind of swap it so even if you know they might be doing terrible things you're still if you're rooting for them it kind of becomes good versus evil in a different way and yes. what i'm thinking yeah. of uh, in particular is v schwab's vicious um i don't know yeah. if anyone's read that but you know that that very much takes you know the idea of the villain and you want the villain to win I guess it's kind of like Despicable Me or Megamind, you know, some kids' films, but they they kind of do the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that everyone's the hero of their own story, regardless of whether you see them as the good guy or the bad guy. I think with fantasy, you know, one of one of the tropes which, you know, has died a death, and I think in a good, good way, is the moustache-twirling two-dimensional bad guy. You know, I think you need some humanity, even in your your guys who are tradi- traditionally viewed as bad guys, so that you can at least understand why they're making the choices they make, even if they're bad choices or horrible choices. Yeah, so I think even your bad guys should have a humanity about them where you can at least understand why they're making the choices they make. They're not just inherently evil. And John, you said previously um, that you were heavily influenced by Norse mythology, um, which is something that I absolutely love. Um, So I wondered, from your point of view, what sort of elements of this particular mythological structure did you find so compelling and want to to utilise? Well, I mean, one of one of my passions when I through my kind of growth of reading has been mythology. I I started off reading fantasy, um, well, having fantasy read to me when I was probably seven or eight, I've got a very vivid memory of a teacher sitting us down in the class and I was seven or eight and he started reading um, the book of three, Lloyd Alexander's book of three, which is part of his Pridane Chronicles. Love that book and the series. It's great. Yeah, it got made made into a film by Disney as the Black Cauldron eventually. Ah. 
that's what sparked my love of fantasy originally. And that was very much based on Welsh um, Celtic mythology. And after that, it was all kind of a slippery slope. You know, my sister said, oh, if you like that, you should try reading The Hobbit. And that was, well, that was, that was it really. It was all um, Nazgul and giant spiders and ring wraiths and dragons. And then King Arthur came along. And after that, a bit of history slipped in as well. But Norse mythology was something that always stood out to me. It's just cool. I don't I didn't really know why then, but I just, if you try and pick it apart, I don't know. I think it's probably the way that um, it's the, the Norse gods are much like Gemmell's books, flawed. You know, they're, they're interesting. They're selfish, greedy, sometimes kind, probably more human than um, a lot of the gods that you come across in other other mythologies and i think that that's that's a real pull and also of course i really like axes and shield <laughs> so yeah there's a there's a lot about norse mythology that, that, that i find really entertaining and interesting to write about just something that you, you feel passionate about things without sometimes without really knowing why it's just one of those things that gets the hairs in the back of my arm standing up when i start reading a bit of norse mythology doing a bit of Viking reenactment. You sort of talk about swords and shields and being very human, and that's obviously categorised the North mythology, and I'd say Greek mythology as well to a certain extent. Yes, but you've yeah. also used um, elements from the Bible as well. So the biblical myth you utilised in your depiction of the angelic Ben Elim and then demonic Hashim, am I saying that right? Yeah, absolutely right. So Brandy. what drew you to the Bible for that particular element? Okay, well, that was I mean, one of the really original um, influences and inspirations for me to start writing The Faith from the Fallen was Paradise Lost, um, John Milton's Paradise Lost, which is about the, the war in heaven, about Lucifer's war with um, the angelic host and his fall from heaven um, and how he became Satan. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I love that, the... the um, the, the title Malice came was orig originally it was a longer title, and um, book one was called So Deep a Malice, which is a quote part of a quote from um, Paradise Lost. So that was really one of the big inspirations for me for for the whole series. I just kind of thought, what would Satan have done next? <laughs> Being thwarted like that, what what would he have done? I don't think he'd have just sat in his chair and and sulked um he would have tried again somehow to to do something to bring down the human race or to spite his creator in some way and so that was really this kind of the seed or the spark that, that eventually became the benelim and the kadashim i mean talking also talking of biblical myth uh, it's interesting because i do like a lot of that and goliath was one of the was probably my main inspiration for my giant clans in the series um so i know you've got it's one of the interesting things in, in the all the mythologies that i read and I, I think i read quite a few um you've you've got some constants and one of them is giants there's giants in every world mythology but a lot of them are um you know like the titans they're, they're just there's bigger mountains but i thought it was really interesting to have giants that were just a little bit bigger than us really like goliath maybe seven, eight, nine feet tall, and that they were clans. Because um, there's quite a lot of references as well in Celtic mythology 
the Tuatha Dé Danann and the Fomorii, those guys. And then in, in Norse mythology, that you've got the Jotun, Germanic, you've got the Hunan. So that they were all inspirations. So there's a lot of biblical inspiration as well. So let's talk about female characters, which is, uh, you probably guessed, our favourite subject. <laughs> so many of your characters across both of your series are, are warriors. I'm thinking uh, Coraline, Riv, Sig, and there's only a few of them. Well, again, I mean, talking of, of women in fantasy, I know that uh, it's, it's not an equal share, and it hasn't been traditionally, which is a real shame. My background um, before in, in, in life, before I was a writer, I was uh, teaching at writing university. And there's, the subjects that I was lecturing on were basically sociology based, but looking at, looking at sociological issues through the lens of sport. And my kind of field, really, that I chose to, to, to um, focus on was gender issues. So my dissertation is masculinity and femininity um, looked at through in, in weight training gyms and that kind of thing. So, I, I, you know, I've, I probably have an awareness of equality or inequality, um, gender construction, all that kind of thing going on in the back of my mind as I'm writing. But historically, I mean, a lot of sociology, a lot of the research that I, I did when I was, li- when I was living that life, now, there's a lot of historical stuff which shows that gender is very much a, a construct and the Victorian age didn't do gender stereotypes a lot of favours in a lot of ways. Um, I've just going through some of the research. I put that, pulled out a book which is called Dark Age Warrior by Ewart Oakshot. It's one of uh, my gems of a reference book that I've used um, for, for many many subjects and writing and there's a, a an extract there from an old battle i'll just read you a couple of lines i think you'll find it quite entertaining it's about the battle of bravo which took place around 700 a.d between an old king and his nephew that wanted the throne so yeah i'll just start reading from the account here and it says a vebjorg shield maiden made hard onsets on the swedes and goths she attacked the champion Soknasoti. She had accustomed herself so well to the use of helmet, coat of mail, and sword that she was one of the foremost Ridderaskap, which means having all the fighting skills. She dealt the champion heavy blows and attacked him for a long while, and with a blow at his cheek, she cut through his jaw and chin. He put his beard into his mouth and bit it thus holding up his chin. She performed many great feats. I don't know if you, if you might enjoy that particularly bloodthirsty example of a shield maiden in um, 700 AD Sweden. <laughs> she sounds pretty badass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But those, you know, if you look historically, you've got Boudicca, you, um, Celtic history, women were fighting alongside men. Historically, it's not a great leap. And that's... Um, you know, and that's just something that I wanted to put into my writing, that, that really women and male, as a warrior, as a warrior mm-hmm. it's, it's very equal ground. It's more about how you're raised than um, any real physical differences. 
Yeah, it's funny because you think that with actual historical examples that this would have been, we would have seen more women taking on um, military roles in in fantasy, um, which we have seen in in recent days, um, but not so much when you start going back through the classics and the same kind of classics that, I mean, I was raised on those the same um, books that you mentioned earlier. um, There aren't so many in there. Women have much more domestic roles. and, And if they are adventurers, they tend to be healers or mages or clerics, like those kind of slightly more you know, less military, uh, less kind of, you know, in the thick of, of a melee. Um, so, yeah, it, I always find it it's quite bizarre that we haven't had more books, you know, over you know, the last 40 years or so that have explored, um, you know, women as warriors. Um, so I think you've kind of, I was going to talk about, you know, your decision to actually include them, but I think we, you've kind of covered that really well to say that actually, you know, you were simply drawing on history and, that's great because, you know, I, I think we're all quite tired of people just saying, oh, well, women didn't do any of those things and history proves it when actually the opposite is true. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think fantasy, fantasy books are very much written in a cultural context and you'll see see the culture of the writer reflected in their writing. You know, and, that, and, and that's that's where a lot of the blame comes from, I think. Hopefully, we'll see more, more of um, less inequality, more equality, gender stereotyping in constructing. And, and my, 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 like I said, my source is, is historical, so it's you know, that's the way it was. So I don't see why it can't be mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And you know, it's it's this. <laughs> we have to remove as many excuses for uh you know that people have been making that you know remove those from the from the agenda and say well actually you know you're just simply being unimaginative and and following kind of as you said that the the victorian um gender stereotypes that were conceived kind of you know 150 200 years ago we said we'd have to kind of follow those and reproduce those in our work yes yeah absolutely we we say all the time about how actually history is completely um, biased when it comes to women, and there are plenty of examples of female warriors that just seem to get completely missed off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So we've touched a little bit on um, women as warriors, but what about women as rulers uh, and leaders of people and men? So um, your books, both of them feature queens, um, and more specifically. Uh, very often they're, they're opposing queens and they stand for a kind of opposing ideologies. Um, for example, uh, in your first series, you have Idana and Rin, and they represent different aspects of ruling the kind of moral duty and self-sacrifice on one side and then cunning and personal ambition on the other side. Um, so do you feel, did you feel it necessary to represent these two kinds of rulers when you were kind of creating uh, the, the series. I mean, can a, we were saying this, can a cunning personality ever be presented as a good character? Um, is is Rin, do we have to write her off as someone who, you know, isn't a good person or isn't, you know, a good ruler? What makes a good ruler? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really, really there's, a, there's a lot to unpack in there. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Uh, um, when, I, when I wrote Rin and Didana, I a lot of my writing wasn't really deeply planned. A lot of it was kind of organic and based on gut feelings. Rin originally kind of came out of the that, that came out of Celtic mythology, 
and that the wicked stepmother really that was the original route for that character um but again you know, you've, you've got this you've got I mean, it's a very old trope you're going out back a, a couple of thousand years for the mythology that are the the stuff that i was reading at the time but um again it's just about making it contemporary i've actually just written a short story about Rin, which is coming out in unfettered three next year and it's going back to her early days and and again just trying to um establish the circumstances that she made the choices and chose the, the path that she went down um is quite a kind of a cunning devious manipulative person and you know and adana is i guess i can i can see why you, you say she's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum uh it wasn't really a conscious decision to 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 write them as opposing i just it just kind of came out that way no i thought that was interesting in the way that you know it is we do see these two types of of rulers you know you do see kings and people in power who are out for their own ends um you know but are still respected as as a monarch and then you obviously see that they're quite you know a different kind of ruler where you know they care about the needs of the people the people above their own desires which is something that you know is often associated with uh, you know being a considered a good king or queen yes yeah absolutely and like you say kings are probably more associated with being the strategic minds on a battlefield so it, it felt nice to write rin as is kind of that having that quality as well she's very much the not just a string puller behind the scenes but when it comes to battles she's she's in charge there as well yeah that's nice to see her out on the battlefield because yeah, it's exactly what we were talking about this gendered script that seems to be applied to um, which it's applied to all sorts of things but in this context yeah we often see kings as having this particular role um in, in ruling and the queen beside them does these you know has very often a more uh, kind of feminine art of negotiation, which is somehow considered to be, um, you know, or, or for example, like I think in um, Joe Abercrombie's Shattered Sea, you know, the, the queen in that is, um, yeah. you know, she, she she rules the house, she she holds the money, the purse strings. So yeah. it's like, you know, her role is, is much more kind of behind the scenes, possibly more domestic. It's maybe no less powerful in its own way, but it's certainly not, you wouldn't say that you'd, she'd put a suit of armour on and go and oversee a battle. That's that's more unusual. You see that also, you know, in Game of Thrones, you've got the Cersei is exactly that. She's the one that manipulates and, and is kind of, you know, moving around her pawns. But, you know, before Rab Robert um, dies, you know, he's very much the go out and, you know, just punch people and, you know, that kind of thing. And you see that... Yeah. that kind of stereotype really working in, in that story <laughs> see her rolling her eyes yeah. at it like oh, yes why did you have to punch that guy <laughs> now look at the diplomatic fury that i have to sort out <laughs> yeah exactly well john with his love of norse mythology um will know just as i do that actually when the vikings went out raiding and trying to gather land it was the women who were left at home and how did you say the purse strings but actually it wasn't the sort of domestic scene you might think because they did all of the men's work so not only did they you know run the household and look after the children but they went out did the farming and the plowing and they fought off anybody who tried to 
you know, attack or anything, any any invaders that might appear. Um, and they kind of carried out dual roles. And I think, you know, there are a lot of Viking texts that indicate how highly thought of the, the women were and they could attend. Um, and I don't think they could vote, but I think they could attend the local um, council meetings and things like that. But that's something that you never really get um, in fantasy. You never get the women staying behind and doing that kind of stuff. It's either stay behind and be domestic or go out onto a battlefield and fight. Ah, but I think you've hit something really important there that the, the concept of domestic, you know, we, when we say domestic, we immediately think of a woman standing at the sink, washing dishes or ironing a husband's shirt. I mean, I like the idea of, you know, there are domestic chores that are done by men. So there is domesticity in, in you're saying chopping wood, fetching, you know, heavy things in, in air quotes, like, you know, there's a lot of labour intensive um domesticity uh that you know that say you say that women take on uh, in times of war and that's really interesting because i don't feel like we talk about that very often that there is this domestic sphere that is is very much a man's and what happens when there are no men to do that women step in and 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 take that over so maybe we should probably stop using the word domestic so much to just you know we're not applying that just to women yeah but also, interestingly, you know, when you have things like World War Two, when all the men went off, and then the women started doing all this kind of, you know, working in the factories and and taking up all these the slack, basically, from when the, the men were away, and then when the men came back and the women were forced back out again, um, that comes, you know, is, makes for an interesting. Um, tension <laughs> which i'd actually quite like to see in a fantasy story uh, where you come back from uh, this you know fantasy big war epic battle and so on and then suddenly the women don't want to give up their you know roles that they've had while the men have been away fighting <laughs> yeah, that'd be a really interesting angle definitely i think there's if you look back historically you know, into uh, antiquity celtic um culture and Norse culture and Dark Ages Europe, there is much more even division of labour. And the rule the, the, the roles were kind of fluid between far more fluid between men and women. When there were some cultures with very strict demarcation like um the Romans, but but if you're looking at Celts and Norths especially there is there is the, the lines are much more blurred, I think. And that's a, you know for for me his that kind of history is is one of the, the the core inspirations for my writing. So it's it's just na it naturally will appear in my writing like that. I think you're going to see more of it though. <laughs> Moving on a little bit, I'd like to just talk about um, one of your new characters uh, in a uh, time of dread, who who's called Drem, um, and. Yeah. A lot of people, I said, um, have said that he's one of their favourite characters, and he is very, very unusual. Um, but yeah, I think you've spoken about this before that you said that you know he does exhibit these repetitive patterns of behaviour, um, and that you know maybe that's uh, it indicates a kind of a slant towards having a kind of Asperger's syndrome. But um, despite its prevalence in society, we really see very few people um, with Asperger's or any kind of autism depicted in in fantasy. In fact depicted in kind of any fiction at all um but you know why is that and Jeremy is such a fascinating character um why did you want to possibly is this something you wanted to touch on with his character um or did this come about naturally oh well i'm, I'm really glad you picked up on that a few, quite a few people have actually i didn't really intend for it to be a thing but um drem or drem is inspired by my youngest son william 
who is on the autistic spectrum. So that's that's kind of the route for writing Drem. And uh, and Drem, the character Drem shares a lot of kind of Will's quirks and um, little behaviors. I mean, Will's Will's really high functioning. He's very very bright, and um, his autism is very subtle. Most people would probably call him quirky, um, but he, he he's he's definitely got a lot of lot of the uh, the. The behaviors and, and mannerisms that you'll see in Drem, I thought they were just really made for a more interesting character, and it's something you just don't see a lot of. Um, disability is one of those things which is, which again, a bit like gender, really, you just don't find a lot of it written in fantasy. Um, and I didn't write it as a as an illness or a problem because. The way I see it in Will, it's just part of who he is. Uh, and, and, you know, in many ways, it adds to his personality. Um, you know, I've got a thousand funny stories about his literal thinking and that kind of thing. So, yeah, he was the inspiration for Drem. And I, I tried to write, write it into Drem's character, much like William, as, it, as if it's not a problem, as if it's not an illness or something that has to be fixed. It's just part of who he is, part of who his character is. And and hopefully that that gave him made or made him stand out a little bit from your average kind of um, coming of age young man growing up in a Norse culture. Uh, it makes him more of a thinker, or less I think, and less a fighter. That was one of the ideas behind it. And of course, he had to be the hero because Will, because my son, is a hero to me. So. He, oh. It's really lovely. Mind you, if if he he doesn't do his homework, I might. might (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Speaking as one parent writer to another parent writer, did you kind of put Drem in because you looked at your son and went, there there are no protagonists that display the same sort of qualities that my son will value. And when he gets older, he'll be able to read a book that has all of these qualities within a protagonist because certainly when I read books and things these days I look for specific things that I would like my daughter to relate to or aspire to and that kind of influences my thinking and writing far more than I thought it would do. Absolutely I think a lot of these things are organic in us aren't they and you find that things come out of you that you don't actually consciously make decisions about but it's just when you look back on it you can see that that it's part of um that's part of where it came from. And yes, definitely. You know, I do feel like there's a, a real lack of characters w- with you know, a range of disabilities and fantasy, and it's nice to, to write them in. So, yeah, part of it was, was, was kind of a subconscious decision. Part of it was a way of writing kind of a male lead that wasn't your classic super warrior, you know, um, and I'd kind of done that in my first series, you know, mm-hmm. you took that classic um, male coming-of-age character in Corban, um, which was great fun to, to write because that was was kind of central to, to a lot of those early books that I loved. And so I wanted to write a character like that, but this time around I wanted to write someone that was, felt very different. And um, I guess just being around Will, I thought, yeah, this would, be, this would make for something interesting and different. And hopefully, I mean, he, he likes he likes reading about Drem. 
So, yeah, hopefully he'll look back on it in years to come and have a smile on his face. I, I think it works so well as as well because you've got Riv, who's a fantastic character, um, you know, on the other side of, of this, the kind of world. And she's almost going through like... Not a not a kind of Corbin esque uh, story. More like it's obviously very much her own, but she's she's obviously a, a soldier, um, so she's very much you know, and that's very much her world. So I feel like you've kind of reversed the the traditional roles here. That you have Drem, who's very much more um, kind of a thinker. He's a bit more intellectual. He's a bit more introverted. Um, and then you have Riv on the other side, who's kind of embodying all of these much more, you know, the, the fantasy tropes that we see much more often, especially in kind of classic fantasy. Um, so I think that's why Drem works so well, especially in this new series. And I can see the next question I was going to ask you is, um, you know, I think this ties in quite well, you know, when you, you actually are continuing in the same world, it's one of the things you have to do differently. How do you keep the world, you know, interesting for readers uh, and actually interesting for yourself as well? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's, it's a real juggling act, I think. I mean, part of it is, uh, I'm a bit weird, I think, because I almost see The Banished Lands, which is the world my series, is, my two series are set in, as kind of an alternative take on Dark Ages Europe with blended with mythology and so it's almost like I'm the narrator rather than the writer. I'm just writing what's going on. So there's plenty to kind of plunder on a historical, mythological level um, or be inspired by. Because the first series, in my mind, was very much inspired by, historically, by Caesar's Gallic War and Boudicca's Revolt, that kind of vibe. And this series is more... Um, Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, the Volsung Saga, uh, Attila the Hun, that, that kind of historical era with all, all their relevant mythologies wrapped into it. Um, but it is, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's when you're writing a second series in the same world, the, the positives is that there's a continuity um, that you're comfortable in the world, but the negatives are that you're not just rewriting the same story. Um, it's about keeping it fresh and, you know, absolutely. One way that I tried very consciously to do that was by writing fresh characters that didn't feel like they were rewrites of any of the characters in the first series. Uh, and, yeah, right, I mean, as, as you guys know, writing's an organic process and you start off with a little seed and it grows and then you may prune it back and, and then it goes off in a different direction. And that's the same with characters as well as plot. But yes, yeah, so Riv and her whole kind of family uh, unit is all, is all female and they're all warriors and it's a kind of a family tradition. I thought it'd just be interesting to turn that kind of military tradition because you often see it, don't you, with, with um, dads and sons and brothers. I just thought it'd be interesting to turn that on its head a bit and uh, write it with, with women instead of men. Hopefully no, it, it works really well. It's, it's really good. I'm glad you think that. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, the other thing I really enjoyed is, um, you know, obviously we're talking about um, your, you know, biblical you know, angels and demons kind of idea. I like the fact that in this new book that the angels, you're beginning to show kind of cracks in their in their facade and in their rule. The fact that, you know, 
they're initially presented as like we these are the people we need to get behind because you know they're they're good and and wholesome and moral and now they seem much more oppressive and restrictive and you know refusing to move with the times and so i think that's very clever you know that they aren't they're not um you know immutable opposites that there is some kind of interaction uh, between between them and the mortals that you know humans are having some um quite profound effect on their their very natures yeah thank you I mean, I, yeah that was one of the things again is if you're going to write these these kind of these archetypes and tropes and angels and demons is not much older than that i suppose it, it's uh, i guess one of the challenges is trying to write them in a way where they feel just more contemporary and current, I suppose, and just a bit more interesting than just two-dimensional good guys or bad guys. And it's nice when you blur, blur the lines a little bit, I think. It just makes it more of a fun read. Oh, definitely. So, John, we're always seeing uh, cool photos of you and your family in Viking armour, um, and as the, the wife of a, a LARPer and um, sort of friends with plenty of LARPers, that's something that always strikes me as just absolutely fascinating. But you did this as historical reenactment, didn't you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a member of a local Viking uh, reenactment group, along with my three sons, which is great fun. Um, really great. It's, um, reenactment is something that I wanted to do for a long time. We've always been a family where the kids have dressed up on every book day at school. You know, they've gone in as Bilbo Baggins and the Scarecrow and um, Count Olaf and all sorts of things. And fancy dress parties. Dressing up has just always been something that we've, that has been a lot of fun in our household. But we, we also love. Um, medieval days and that kind of thing and we often talked about getting involved in some kind of um, medieval reenactment and came across this bunch of marauding vikings that aren't too far from us so we we jumped at that opportunity to join them and we yeah, so we've been vikings for a while now and it, it is a lot of fun it, it's, re it's really great but it's also really instructive um, as a writer I, I hope I feel like it is anyway, and that adds a lot of details and authenticity, I think that that you just could that I would never have thought of just using my imagination. You know, the first day that we um, went to Viking training and just learned a few drills with, with the shield and spear. Just after ten minutes, my left arm was was dead. It was numb from holding the shield. How did those guys do it for you know length, such lengths of time in battle? And when I got up the next day, I felt like I'd been beaten up. Just joints were aching in different ways. And there's, there's so many little details that are really great. For example, getting in and out of a coat of mail is not as easy as a lot of fancy writers. <laughs> <laughs> I had a horrific experience at the Battle of Hastings last year where I tried one on and literally got stuck. It was, I was just stuck in it. And, uh, it um, then... I, I started to hear a sound. It was my family, and it wasn't cries of worry or help. It was their laughter. That's all I could hear. I was, I was, I was wrapped up in this coat of mail, and I just heard laughter and more laughter. And then I heard, heard that growing as a crowd formed around me, and <laughs> was just, uh, it was horrendous. I, was, I don't know how long I was stuck in it for, but I, I had to get, to get me out in the end. I've managed to, to master the art now, but it's... Um, 
it's not as easy as you think just putting a coat of mail on or taking it off. Uh, and I, I think reenactment just just um, introduces you to details like that that can just flavour your writing. That's what I tell my wife anyway. <laughs> it's, it's all about the research. <laughs> Dabbing people or, or um, dressing up with swords and, and axes. But it is the kind of the little details that you need. I mean, I know that my husband, um, who is a LARPer, made his own chainmail from ringmail. And it, exactly. when we moved house, yeah, I know. Uh, when we moved house, he took it with us, and and I couldn't lift it into the into the van because it was just so heavy. And you imagine, like you say, fighting all day when your arm is numb from all the impacts, and then at the end of it, having to take that off after having carried it round all day. Um, and as a girl, getting your hair caught in it as well, it's not fun. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet. Be, having a shaved head is actually quite helpful with that. Absolutely. You're right. The, my my um, coat of mail is about 12, 13 kilos. And when it's on, it's all on your shoulders. So, yes, it's all quite an experience. And really immersing yourself into it really helps because I did a um, historical reenactment at the Merton Museum of Farming um, years and years ago with a load of friends. And you have to put so much stuff away. You can't have anything on show. You can't have any watches. You can only have certain types of rings if they're made of certain type of metal. Um, you have to hide all your modern underwear. You can wear your modern underwear, but you have to hide the rest of it, you know, and it, if you yeah. bring a bag and it's got to be hidden under wool sheets and you just living the life is so different to, you know, how you would imagine it. And you pick up so many tiny little details, just like the way your skin smells at the end of the day or, you know, yeah. how you brush your teeth without toothbrushes or how you wash your, your pots. Like we had um, a tap, but we had to wash them with grass because, of course, you didn't have sponges and scrubbers in those days. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It, I think um, reenacting can just add, add another layer of depth and authenticity to your writing so which do which do you think came first your love of writing or the love of um reenactment and cosplaying what do you think oh crikey i mean i i, I didn't start writing until quite late in life i've always been a reader but i didn't start writing until my mid-30s but uh, i've only been reenacting for uh, um, every year now um but in my head, I've been both for many years. I don't know about you, but I tend to find my LARPing and my reenactment friends are just a wealth of untapped resources that all writers should have, really, because you call them up and go, yeah, what, what kind of horses did they have in this era? Or, you know, what kind of metal do they have to make their chainmail out of? Or, or what, you know, what stage were they with cooking pots and you know, cutlery and things like that? Oh, that's right. Yeah, definitely. And, and they're very... Kind of rigorously strict in our in the Viking reenactment world in the UK, so you know everything has got got to be as spot on as um or as authentic as, as it can possibly be. Obviously, we don't know everything about the Dark Ages, but um even down to the kind of sole on your shoes, uh, it has to be authentic and accurate, and the kind of the type of stitching used on tunics, uh, the embroidery. Uh, and it's all got to be kind of in character. So if you're, is your character, are they wealthy? Are they early in their career as a warrior? Uh, what kind of warrior are they? Do they specialise in spear? Are you a berserker? All, all those kind of 
in details, uh, yeah, you, you're you're absolutely right. They're on tap. There's a lot of people there to to help out with all those details. Mm. Yeah, I'm new to just go and tweak my manuscript a bit now after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember reading your manuscript and saying to you, "No, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have plates in those days. <laughs> trenches. I've changed it to trenches. Are you Very happy well. now?" <laughs> I think trenches started off as stale bread, didn't they? And then they progressed to wooden trenches. Yes. Something yes. like that. Well, I have the excuse that my Dark Age family is, uh, you know, royal. So they've had right. some nicer things than <laughs> stale bread to eat off it's of. A... <laughs> but yeah, it's a really interesting point about um, reenactment and how it can. It's all the little things that you could just never, ever make up. Exactly. All, just so many little details and the aches and pains as well. Yeah, those particularly, I can imagine. Uh, you know, you always hear the, you know, like those long fantasy rides on a horse. They say, oh, my buttocks are aching. And <laughs> I'm sure there are like other places that are aching. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Inside mean, of your legs. When we, <laughs> yeah. our, when we took our spear test, um, you have to you have to pass a trial for each weapon if you're going to use it in displays in in being out in displays. So what the first test or trial we took was our um, spear test, which is so cool because I've been writing about like warrior trials and stuff in my first series, but to actually do it was so much fun. But one of the things that we had to do was stand in a shield wall and just face being shot at with arrows and slings um, and just to make sure that obviously is a lot of it now is, health and safety these days so just to check that you're not going to do anything stupid but standing there and seeing people literally drawing arrows at you aiming at you and loosing is is quite quite something to, to do and you know that they're blunt and you've got a shield but it, it still just gives you an edge of, of something just a, a little idea of, of how it must have felt to, to actually face something like that and of course, the, the one, the main advice that we're always told uh, when you're standing in the shield wall and people have, um, when you see archers coming towards you or drawing, is to not look up. Apparently, that was Harold's biggest mistake. Aye, <laughs> uh, the famous eye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't look up. I think that's a good place to wrap up on. I don't that know about you. Indeed. Yeah. Don't look up. We always seem to have these little things at the end of our discussions, aren't they? Lesson learned today. Yeah. <laughs> that would kind of work for where I live since it's by the coast and there are a lot of angry seagulls around. So. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us, John. It's been a pleasure. Oh, no, my, my pleasure entirely. It's been great chatting to you guys. Lots of fun and lots of interesting stuff in your questions. It's really good fun to go through them. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. If you enjoy our show, please like, listen, subscribe and share.